want to invite you to grab your Bible and start making your way to Esther chapter 6. We'll be in Esther chapter 6 and 7 this morning. And judging by some of your faces, I think we need to maybe change the introduction here a little bit. So let's talk about this instead. Uh, Marvel Avengers, okay? Marvel Avengers. There's so many great heroes. There's so many great just people that we would love to say are our favorite. I think if I were to ask you, it would just turn into a huge debate and fight, and I don't want to do that. So instead of arguing about who's the best, I want to talk about one that I don't think is actually anyone's favorite, uh, except one or two of you probably, Doctor Strange. I think Doctor Strange is, except for my my good friend Doc Scott, uh, in most In most Avenger rankings, I don't think Doctor Strange even makes the top five. He is a a master of the uh, mystic arts. He's a a sorcerer sworn to defend like the fabric of time and reality. Doctor Strange, you know him, right? You know who we're talking about? You got him, right? Doctor Strange, um... If you're an avid fan of Doctor Strange, you, you know that he was destined to be the best uh, of, of them all. And I mention him because Doctor Strange has me thinking about something that I believe all of us wish that we had. Doctor Strange has the ability to look into the future, especially when that future is uncertain. And you can geek out on me later about how exactly he does that, time stones and, you know, magical abilities or or whatever. But he can look into the future, and he doesn't do it a lot because I think it's dangerous. But when he does, he's comforted by the reality of what's to come, what's to expect, what's ahead. He can look into the future and say, I know this is coming, and I think even when that's not good news, He's comforted by knowing what to expect. So Dr. Strange's power, it reminds us of what makes life so difficult for the rest of us, doesn't it? We don't have a time stone. We don't have magic powers to be able to look into the future when our days don't make a lot of sense. We don't have that ability to go, oh, I know what's coming and I'm, I'm, I'm comforted by that. We don't know what the future holds. And outside of what God has told us in the Bible about the end of our time, we really don't know what to expect in between now and then. Don't know what this afternoon will bring. I don't know what this week will bring. I don't know what next month will bring. There's a lot of uncertainty about our future. There's just no way for us to know ahead of time the results of our actions, what will happen when we do this or don't do this. There's there's no way to know. And because of that, we often worry. We don't really know what's going to happen. And we often find ourselves probably anxious about something and nervous about something kind of wondering and thinking about the uncertain future ahead of us. What's going to happen when I take this test that I didn't study for? 
What will be the outcome when I try out for this team or audition for this play? What's going to happen? I don't know what to expect. Will I make friends when I go to this new school or when I go to this youth group? Is anybody going to talk to me? Is anybody going to like me? Should I go to summer camp? Yes. Shameless plug for summer camp. Yes, you should go to summer camp. We don't know what the future will bring. Life can give us more than we can handle when we think about our future. It can be uncertain about what's to come. And those emotions, that worry, that anxiety, that panic, that stress, it's easy for those emotions to become sort of a constant for us. They just kind of fill our time if we aren't sure where to turn. God's word does tell us where to turn. When we aren't sure what the future holds, we can be confident that the Lord, the Lord does know and that we can trust him. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So we open back up to the story of Esther again this morning. This verse that we just read in Proverbs, it's, it's a verse that sort of seems to rise to the surface. Because for Esther and Mordecai and for us as the reader, kind of left off not sure what the future holds. We're not sure what these next moments for them are going to bring. A lot of uncertainty, but those verses in Proverbs, they remind us that there is no reason for worry. There is no reason to doubt what the future holds. There's no reason to be anxious. Our understanding, it isn't what's important. And as I think of these Verses again in Proverbs, it's, it's knowing that God is able to make our path straight. It's knowing that God will make our path straight that really matters. God directs our steps. Our future is secure. Even when it looks like this. So our big idea, we're going to borrow from Proverbs chapter 3 for us this morning. And again, if you're kind of catching up in Esther, Esther doesn't mention God. Esther doesn't mention any sort of godly activity. Esther is the closest book in the Bible that resembles our life because we, we don't get those behind the scene looks. And Esther forces us to take what we know about God from other parts of the Bible and bring it in so that we can know how to think and live and and what to do. And for chapter six and seven, I think Proverbs three, five, and six are really helpful for us. So our big idea, you can trust in the Lord for your future when you commit your ways to him. You can trust in the Lord for your future when you commit your ways to him. Chapter five, we left Esther kind of only initially successful here. She didn't lose her life. That was a win, you know. She, she's still breathing. That's cool. Uh, and, and, and even once again now, she sort of found favor with the king again. She convinced the king not only to come to one party, but another party. So she's got some success going for her. And, and Haman, though, is sort of our antagonist. He has a plan that can just drastically change things. Doesn't seem like Esther is going to be able to save her cousin Mordecai. 
Looks like even if she saves her own life and her fellow Jews, Mordecai is the one who's in the most danger. I'm going to read our text this morning, and it's a little bit long. I'm going to read both 6 and 7 because I want to try to help get us back into this story. But I want to read it and then help you see why this big idea is true. Okay, Esther chapter 6, verse 1 says this. On that night, the night that everything has just happened, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It was found written how Mordecai told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? King's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done for him. King said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. King said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man who the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. It's weird, isn't it? (laughs) The horse that the king has ridden, on whose head a royal crown is set. Let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, shouting before him, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. King said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you've mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse And he dressed Mordecai and he led them through the square of the city, shouting before him, thus shall it be done to the man who the king delights to honor. And Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, "If, if Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and they hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it will be fulfilled. Queen Esther answered, well, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish 
and my people for my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our afflictions not to be compared with the loss to the king. And King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and he went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, Gallows is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the wrath of the king abated. Cool story, huh? You can trust in the Lord for your future when you commit your ways to him. I I just want to look at two scenes First in chapter six, and we're going to call it Haman's humiliation. Haman's humiliation, 6-1, these opening words on the same night. It's, it's meant to connect us to the immediate scene. This is still ongoing. It's not over. It's the same night. Haman has been up all night, busy boy. He's building those giant gallows, again, 75 feet tall. You don't have to think of it as the most well-constructed thing, but it's something very high in the air where they can display Mordecai's dead body. It was meant to be a message throughout the empire of what happens when you mess with Haman. And on that same night, while Haman is busy building, the text says the king can't sleep. It actually says that sleep fled from him. It, it, It ran away from him. It escaped from the king. It was let loose. Again, no mention of why, but we see God's involvement suggested here. A a sleepless night on just the right night. It wasn't because of a scary movie, which happens to us, I know. It wasn't like an accidental, you know, glass of Mountain Dew when he meant to reach for like warm milk. He's not over-caffeinated. He can't sleep. Something that he's worried about Esther taking up to half of his kingdom that he was actually up worried about that. Like, is she actually going to take half? Why did I say that? But I don't think that's it because he offers it again in chapter seven. No, it's a sleepless night because this night he needs to be sleepless. And the king calls for these stories, these chronicles of the kingdom. And don't confuse this with like the chronicles of Narnia. That's not this 
This is not a fascinating story. It's simply just a, a book of records, kind of a, a record of like boring info about the king's daily life and maybe some like notable accomplishments of his. And I think having someone else read it is meant to be like a really dull sermon or a really boring teacher. It's a sleep aid. It's a noise machine. I need to get back to sleep. What will do the trick? I know. (laughs) Go get that boring book and read it to me. I'll be out in minutes. But this night, it's not boring. It's the record of Mordecai's heroic act that's read to the king. I don't think the king was looking for anything fascinating, but that's precisely what he hears. His life was spared by Mordecai. He was saved. Mordecai had gone unrewarded and unthanked all this time. At the very same moment that Haman is building some giant death display for Mordecai, the king realizes that Mordecai is responsible for saving his life. What timing. And no doubt, I think the king is now really awake and he realizes what needs to happen. He hasn't done what kings normally do. Persian kings, they go big in the reward department for faithful servants, especially when that service resulted in you still breathing, you still being alive. I'd obviously encourage more people to to do the same. Yet years have passed. It's been so long. But I want you to see even at the very beginning of chapter six on the night when Mordecai needed it most. Now God's timing will will, will fall into place and the king will discover that Mordecai's not been properly rewarded and something must happen right now. And verse three should contain a little oomph in the king's voice. Please tell me we've done something for Mordecai, but a clear explanation from his guys. There's nothing been done because there's nothing recorded. There's nothing here. I think already we can make some application about how potential disappointments we have in life might actually be God's timing rather than our own. Mordecai might not even be the wiser here. All he knows is that he wasn't rewarded all those years ago. He didn't get a nice gift card from the king. There was no thank you note here, just silence. But all this time, God was orchestrating something to make Mordecai's path straight. And this reward, as I said, it'll come at a much better time for him. It'll actually spare his life and his countrymen. What delay there is in God's timing versus our own. What we expect to happen sometimes in hours or at worst, like a day or two. God is willing to wait years And we need to be okay with that. This is God's path for us. I can trust in the Lord, not my own expectations, not my own understanding, but I can trust in the Lord. And look at verse four. Both the king and Haman have been up all night just for very different reasons. Haman's up by choice, this busy building and building, but the king's up because he can't sleep and it's So unreal to think that Haman arrives at the court at this precise 
time. Haman agreed to the scheme of his friends. I love how the text calls him his wise men uh, and his wife. He was going to build these gallows and then he was going to be there early in the morning to tell the king what he had done and to have the king have Mordecai hanged on it. So there's no mention of sleep for Haman, but he's there at the right time. He's there to help solve the king's dilemma, even though he doesn't know it yet. I think he's there so early, not expecting the king to be awake, but just to be first in line in what luck the king is uh, awake. And he wishes to speak to anyone who's in the court to help him figure out what to do about Mordecai. And wouldn't you know it, Haman's walking in at just the right time. How could that be? They both want to discuss Mordecai just for very different reasons. Haman is now, I love the tent. It's so great. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Haman is at the place. It's okay. They'll leave in a second. He's at the place where Esther stood so vulnerably the day before. Now Haman is there, a little more confident, I think, than Esther was, but not invited by the king. Will the king want him in or not? We we don't know, but again, he's, he's summoned in. There's an absence of formalities here, no sort of court language needed, just straight to it. And and Haman's barely made it into the king's presence. And Ahasuerus is just blurting it out. What should be done with the man I want to honor? And all this sort of sets up Haman. What an incredible, like 24 hours he's had. It's incredible. First, the invitation to this private party, and then he's invited to another one, and he gets all this great advice. He got the gallows built overnight. Now he's here before the king, and not only is he going to get to kill Mordecai, but it's surely the king wants to honor him. Of course, he thought the king was talking about him. He was so full of himself. How ironic that the king doesn't mention the, the man whom he wishes to honor, Haman knows the answer to this question. He, he knows the protocol, money, gift card, just do the normal thing, king, but thinking it's him, his vanity gets the better of him. And we see how easily Haman's distracted from his own purpose. He was there to talk about Mordecai, to have him killed, but instead we're gonna talk about rewards for me. Yay, my favorite topic. <laughs> let's push pause on that convo and let's talk about me. The thought of Mordecai sort of completely out of his mind, Haman happily lays out this reward, this fantasy that's fitting for himself. Haman passes on the formalities language as well. He doesn't do the normal like, oh, king, if it would please you, kind of blah, blah, blah. He just goes for it. And he immediately just describes what he wants for himself. He wants to be treated like the king. Kind of weird that he wants to wear the king's, you know, dirty clothes, but whatever, the king had worn them. He wants to wear his clothes. He wants to ride his horse. And let's make sure everybody knows this horse is yours. Let's put a crown on his head. I want people to think that I'm the king. I want people to think that I'm just like you and even more special treatment. You know what? Let's, let's just go for it. Let's ask one of the most senior officials in the court 
to, to dress this man and lead him around the city and shouting and drawing attention and making a scene that this one is the one the king wants to honor more than anyone else. With these words, Haman just sets himself up for his own fall. He's trapped by his own prideful desires, obviously thinking he will be the one sitting on the horse. The author allows us just a little bit of delight here. God's timing has created this opportunity for Haman's fall. Precisely the point where Haman is convinced that things can't get any better, we start to see that things are going really bad for Haman. Verse 10 is the most enjoyable verse in the whole book. King says to Haman, do everything, just as you've said. Don't leave out even one detail and do this quickly and do this for Mordecai. Mordecai's name is reserved to the last possible moment in that sentence, giving Haman every syllable to enjoy that this is for him. (laughs) It's not. This honor is not his. And it's not until he hears that name, Mordecai, that he realizes what's just happened. I think you can imagine the blood sort of boiling inside Haman. It's total and utter shock. And Haman now is stuck. No choice but to do this, to obey the king's order, to do all of this stuff. I think we're even here supposed to believe and supposed to see that every detail is under the Lord's hand. How straight Mordecai's path has become. All those chapters ago when Mordecai didn't get the reward he wanted, all those interruptions, it reminds us, all those delays, all those cancellations and closed doors and all that stuff, God controls all of it. He controls all the events uh, all around us, working out his good for us. And God's timing too is perfect. Haman didn't realize what God was up to. But now he sees God was using all this to to spare his life. And and what a twist. We're told of no detail of how Mordecai or or Haman felt about this whole thing. Only that Haman is the one who dresses Mordecai. Haman now has to humbly change Mordecai out of that sackcloth and ashes and put him in these royal robes. Interesting to think that now both Esther and Mordecai are dressed in royalty. We don't really need the author to tell us how Haman felt. We don't really need his input. The one he hated was getting the honor he thought was his own. The one he wanted dead is getting this awesome treatment that he thought was for him. You only have to be human to figure out how that would devastate him, how that would crush him. Verse 12 gives us that little detail. Mordecai was, all right, whatever, and he goes back to his normal spot, but not Haman. He runs home crying, covering his face. Instead of being honored by all, he's publicly humiliated. And verse 13, he's 
sort of assembled the, the wise counsel once more. And this time there's no mention of all that he had. There's no boast. There's no bragging. It's just the details of what happened, the humiliation he experienced and an answer from them this time that's far more frightening for Haman than comforting. And they say to him, if, if this man is Jewish, you're done. This fall is, is going to be complete. And there's no explanation of why they say that or why they think that. I have no idea what they do or, or don't know. Maybe they knew some Jewish history. It's possible they knew of God's commitments and promises to Abraham and, and David the promise God made to deliver his people, but maybe it's just the Persian way of saying a a truth that they can't quote, but a truth that they have seen. God's people always seem to survive. We've seen this over and over in our history. God's people survive because of God. And Haman, you're in trouble. Where was that council the day before? Again, there's evidence of God's sort of split-second timing here in verse 14. Haman doesn't even have time to process what his friends just said. What, what could he do? It doesn't matter. There's no time. The eunuchs are there to hurry him along to dinner party number two. And that really transitions us to our second scene. Verse 14 begins this next scene, and we'll call it Haman's Hanging. I'm sure Haman was thinking the whole way there, thinking, man, things can't possibly get any worse. But Haman will soon find out that they can and they will. Clearly, he's lost the control he thought he had. He thought he could control the king to eliminate Mordecai and control the king's blessing to make himself equal with the king. Now he can't even control his afternoon. He, he must go to this party. He's hurried. It's out of his control. His party can't start without him. It's kind of like he's being arrested rather than being sent to the party. That's the feeling here. And now chapter seven, this whole chapter starts to insist and portray that Esther is, is now Queen Esther. And the queen is wise and she's again patient in her question asking. Very formal and Chapter or seven, verse three, she's very formal, but then she sort of explodes in verse four. This, this passion seeps out of her. Here's the problem. And seeking for her life, she has to reveal the truth that she's a Jew. For the first time, she has to place herself in real danger. There's no more hiding. She also reveals to Haman how much she knows. She knows he's the one behind it all. If things don't go well, it's, it's over for her. Verse five, it's interesting. It's like the king stutters. Twice in the Hebrew, it says the king said, he said, like just stuttering with, with just surprise. Simple questions, direct questions. Just who and where, who did this? Who would dare do this? And Haman, it's just in this scene and it's so funny. I love this part. Haman's in this scene and he normally can't shut his mouth. He, he normally just is, is talking, 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 but here he's just so silent this whole meal. And I think all of us have been in this situation before. 
at the dinner table and something didn't go right this day and mom knows and she's waiting to tell dad. And you're just like, if I just don't say anything, maybe they won't know I'm here. I'm just going to keep eating and pray that I get through this meal unnoticed. That is what Haman is doing here. But Esther's not going to forget. She can finally accuse him in verse 6. And Esther uses all her words, presenting him in all his wickedness. He's a foe, an adversary, an enemy, this wicked Haman. What a presentation. Mordecai had humbled him and Esther had trapped him. And he just has to sit in this silent terror, utterly helpless as the king decides his fate. Verse seven, the king's anger is in full swing again. He leaves to go walk around his garden while he thinks about how mad he is and what he wants to do, like when your parents are deciding your punishment. It's the same thing here. He's so mad, but this gives Haman a moment to beg the queen for his life. And where Esther had once been instructed to beg the king for the lives of the Jews, now Haman begs for his own life. Haman falls before Esther. When the king comes back at just the right time again, he doesn't like the way this looks. You don't fall on the couch where the queen is. In fact, protocol was that no one was allowed to be alone with the queen but the king. And so when Ahasuerus left the room, Haman should have got up and left as well. But rather he stood in her presence and he approached the queen and he fell on her couch. And that was a bad idea. He approached Esther in a way that he shouldn't have. And the law is what the law was and there was nothing anybody could do to stop it. All the king had to do was say, this man even assaults the queen in my own house, in my own presence. And the guards know what to do. Covering his face is a way of saying they're leading him to his execution. And it's interesting because there's this one last little scene, this, this, this person who wants to just remind the king of a potential way to kill Haman. Reminds him of these gallows. And the words that Haman once hoped to hear about Mordecai in this crazy twist of events, he's now hearing them spoken about himself. Hang him on that. Haman will hang from his own gallows. And it's, it's not until the king sees that that his anger finally calms down. I love the Bible. <laughs> it's such a cool story. Only God could create and, and really just direct a story like this, this sleepless night. This is really the turning point in the whole book. But listen, it's so much more than the king's insomnia that God's orchestrated here. And I want you to think about this for just a second. All that we've been through in Esther so far, all the timing of this must be just Right, and it began years ago. Years ago that Mordecai could overhear the plot of those two guards wanting to kill the king. The timing had to be just right and, and he gets to report it. And yet 
Mordecai's honor must be delayed. And in the process of this terribly powerful king searching for a new queen, Esther must be chosen. Esther must be patient as she hears of the terrible news of her cousin and news of Haman's plan to exterminate them all. And she must be emboldened to use her position to speak to the king. Haman must feel confident and he must stay up all night and he must get these gallows built and the king must be sleepless. And the part of the story that's going to be read this night, it must be about Mordecai. And the arrival of Haman that morning, it must be early. And his assumption must be wrong. And his humiliation must happen. And Haman must be hurried to that second party. And Esther's, you know, presentation must finally come. Haman must beg for his life. The king must re-enter the room at just this moment and the attendant must mention Haman's gallows. It's not just a sleepless night. No, God orchestrated all of this. All of this is under the sovereign hand of God. This is God making the paths of all his people straight. This is God directing steps. This is but one example of how God preserved his people while they were under that threat of extermination. Proverbs 3 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make your path straight. story also helps us think a little more clearly about God's victory over evil. As we look at it and think about it, even when it seems like wickedness is close to winning the day, the story of Esther gives us hope, hope of the kind of change that God will one day fully and finally bring. Haman's death here, it doesn't fully deal with the evil that he initiated. Something else, something further will have to be done. And and we're going to get to that part of the story. But in the same way, the, the, the gospel reminds us that the death of Christ, it's only begun to deal with the problem of, of evil in our world. Christ did make a way for us to be free from our sin in the gospel did make a way, but a future day must come where he will once and for all put an end to wickedness like this. There is still evil in our world that must be finally treated and and fully dealt with. Points us to the cross where God initiated his victory and it reminds us of the coming day when King Jesus will stand triumphant over all of it. There'll be no more powerful kings or presidents or whatever to worry about. There'll be no more wicked Hamans in this world to worry about. There will be no more worry about the future because our days will be consumed with Jesus and our days will be free from sin. It's gonna be awesome. But trusting in the Lord with all your heart, like our our big idea tells us, it, it begins with calling out to Christ for salvation. It begins there. Trusting in him begins with believing in his 
gospel. Otherwise, your days will be consumed with your own understanding and you'll refuse to acknowledge God until it's way too late. Your past will end like Haman. They'll end like all those who oppose God. And people, you don't need a time stone. You don't need powers like Dr. Strange. All we need is God's word. God's word tells us to commit our life to him, commit our ways to him, trust in him. It doesn't matter what it looks like to us. It doesn't matter about our understanding, our thoughts, our expectations, whatever. And we can trust God with our future. We can and we should. Father, how good to see this truth on display. We see it all the time. When we look back in our own lives, we see how you've orchestrated each and every detail. God, how you work in the ordinary things of our life. We love to see how you direct our steps, how you make our paths straight. Father, I pray that you would help these young people call out to you for salvation, to begin to trust in you, to trust in you with all their heart, with their whole life. Father, help us to not be consumed with what we think or with what we can understand, but rather just to run to you and to trust you instead. Father, for the young believers in the tent this morning, pray that you would help them and and help the other believers to acknowledge your way above our own. God, to desire to live for you in all that we do and to trust our future to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.